This week, we ask a really hard question: How did life begin? An experienced professor can usually babble his way to an explanation for almost anything, and I have to say that in this area, I can't. And piecing together two million years of global temperature data. We have so much information that we've gathered from pole to pole, from desert to sea. Really, putting it together is is the challenge. Plus, studying one of the heaviest elements in a split second. This is the Nature Podcast for September the twenty ninth, twenty sixteen. I'm Adam Levy, and I'm Noah Baker. First up this week, one of the biggest questions in biology is how did life begin? But the answers are more likely to be chemical than biological. Sharmini Bandel has been talking to Harvard University chemist George M. Whitesides about bridging the gap between the primordial soup and the amazing complexity of a living cell. What distinguishes life is that we know that life, a cell, is made up of a collection of molecules. That's fine, and we know that the molecules are reacting with one another. And we also know that the molecules are not alive, and the reactions are not alive, but the cell is alive. Often the molecules are fairly simple, but the way in which they interact with one another—that is, the networks—results in this property that we call life. So your focus is on not just chemicals or the reactions, but interactions between reactions, big networks. But you wanted to start with quite simple molecules. What we were trying to do in this paper was to work with kinds of molecules that plausibly might have been present in the world which gave rise to life. And show that the chemistry that was involved in these sorts of reactions could be linked and controlled in a way that led to complex behaviors. So you had your system set up with these simple organic molecules,、uh, things like thiols and amides. And what kind of complex behaviors were you actually able to create? What we were able to create with these systems was oscillations. That means the concentrations of Various products go up and down with time in a predictable way, so it's a little bit like a pendulum and a clock. And that sort of behavior is actually fairly uncommon in chemistry and has not been accomplished before with these types of molecules. Well, in animals, I can think of lots of, sort of complicated oscillating reactions, like circadian rhythms or heartbeats. But how can you create a sort of complex repeating pattern just with a few chemicals? You can. Build systems that oscillate using a number of different strategies. The one that we have used is to have a reaction that is autocatalytic. That is, in a sense, it explodes once it gets started. It goes faster and faster. And then we have another reaction, which you can think of as a trigger, which sets this off. And the chemistry is arranged in such a fashion that the reaction that's autocatalytic. Goes faster and then it goes out, and then the materials that are required to do that build up again. Then the trigger goes off and it goes through one of these exponential expansions again. So the overall effect that you see is one in which the reaction goes on and turns off and goes on and turns off and goes on and turns off, and that's relatively. Complicated to do, and it involves the careful balancing of the rate in which you feed materials to the reactor and sweep products away. Because this isn't all just happening in a single test tube, is it? You've got a flow in and out, and you've got a, a, a changing system. 
What we use is called a continuous stirred tank reactor. We feed the reactants into a small circular reactor with a stirrer and then allow the products simultaneously to be carried away. And one of the interesting ideas is to think about a cell in some ways as a continuous stirred tank reactor. The food for the cell goes in and then the products diffuse out. And are you actually trying to recreate a kind of life where your stirrer is is a cell? What we're trying to do is to mimic in a very primitive way the small network that shows complex behaviors because a cell is a small network that shows complex behaviors. And trying to understand conceptually or in model systems how it can be that relatively simple molecules can begin to show complex behaviors of which oscillation is one. And moreover, we're trying to do this with chemicals and reactions of the type that you can find in cells even now. And you're, you're trying to show an example of how it could be. You're not saying that the particular chemicals that you used were the ones that first started off these reactions in life. Right. The chemicals that we use are more complicated than the very simplest things that could have been there at the beginning. On the other hand, they are carrying out chemistry, which is probably chemistry that was there at the beginning. So the reaction types are common. The specific molecular structures are not. People ask, why are you studying the origin of life? Because after all, you can never go back and repeat the experiment. And that's correct. On the other hand, if we could find design rules and principles which allowed systems of reactions to modify themselves or their products to respond to changes in the environment or their circumstances or whatever, I think it would, it would revolutionize chemistry and material science. And I think it will ultimately turn out to be a really important part of moving science from relatively simple equilibrium systems to much more complicated dissipative systems. This area of origin of life, it's good to have problems that are that are really important, because I would argue that where life came from is one of, as I've said, one of the most interesting problems in natural science, in which you don't know what the answer is. You know, an experienced professor can usually babble his way to an explanation for almost anything. And I have to say that in this area, I can't. And I think no one else can either, which means it's a real problem. And those are neat to have around. That was George M. Whitesides talking to Sharmini Bundell about the neat problem of the origin of life. You can find that paper at nature.com forward slash nature along with a news and views article. To understand how the climate will change in the future, researchers have to look to the past. The past can shed light on what the planet is capable of and how sensitive it is to all sorts of different influences. But humans only started measuring weather conditions relatively recently. Unfortunately, there weren't many weather stations around the world a few hundred years ago, let alone a few hundred thousand years ago. So climate scientists use proxies. Measuring things like tree rings and ice cores allow researchers to infer what temperatures were like in the past. And now, a study has used cores of ocean sediments to build up a picture of global temperatures not just over a few thousand years, but over the last two million years. And with this comes a striking suggestion regarding today's climate. I phoned up Gavin Schmidt, director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, to find out his thoughts on the paper. 
Gavin started by telling me about the global temperature records we already have. When when you get back beyond like the last ice age, it's it's really hard to do, um, and so there's been a few place a, f- a few time periods where people have attempted to do that. But putting it together uh, as a time series over that whole period, um, up until now, that that's been uh, that's been elusive. Well, now there's this paper coming out which. Uh, looks at the evolution, well, this is the title, Evolution of Global Temperatures Over the Past 2 Million Years. This paper used uh, a network of 59 uh, different cores uh, in different ocean basins around the world. So that kind of information has been around. But but putting it together, taking into account uh, the uncertainties in the uh, the dating of each of the data points, right, because that's uncertain as well, uh, taking into account regional variations, taking into account measurement uncertainties, that analysis, that way of putting it together, um, is actually uh, a pretty uh, big challenge. And, and it's only really by using pretty modern statistical methods to put that together uh, that this paper has been able to, uh, to pull together a, uh, uh, such an impressive estimate for, for global temperatures. So it's not that someone's gone out and taken some extra measurements that we didn't have before. It's about how these measurements have been combined. That's right. It's all about synthesis. And in fact, you know, we have so much information that we've gathered from all across the planet, from, you know, from pole to pole, from desert to sea. And really putting it together is is the challenge. One of the, the big questions we have for our modern climate, of course, is how uh, how the world's temperatures relate to the levels of greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere, most crucially carbon dioxide. And in this paper, we have a long record of temperatures and carbon dioxide spanning several ice ages. What does this teach us about the past climate? What could it teach us about the present climate? This is a very familiar picture. I mean, so it was in Al Gore's movie, and there's a very clear relationship between the temperature uh, over these ice age cycles and the carbon dioxide levels. So the ice ages themselves are being driven by wobbles in the Earth's orbit. That, in turn, affects the carbon cycle, right? So when you're in a cold ice age, uh, you have lower carbon dioxide. Now, we know also that carbon dioxide is is a greenhouse gas. So if you have lower carbon dioxide, you're also going to have a cooling effect. And so what happens is that the ice age and the ice sheets conspire to uh, lower carbon dioxide, which then cools the planet even more, extending the ice sheets and then f- uh, affecting the carbon cycle some more. So there's, so there's this kind of interplay between the two factors uh, that you see uh, very, very clearly in, in these records. Uh, but it's very hard to pull out how much does the ice sheet affect the carbon and how much does the carbon affect the temperature. But this paper does look at the relationship between CO2 and temperature over past ice ages. And it says that applying this relationship to today suggests we may already be committed to five degrees Celsius of warming. Now, that is a very striking number. After all, the aim is to limit future warming to two or even one and a half degrees Given the complexity of the interaction between carbon dioxide and temperature fluctuations, does this number stack up? 
Uh, yeah, so so I, I don't think that that's correct. I, um, if you just uh, correlate one with the other, uh, you're correlating two things that are both being driven by a third factor, uh, and that actually turns out to be uh, quite important. That third important factor being the Earth's orbit, which changes over ice ages, but isn't driving CO2 or temperature today. Unfortunately, Carolyn Snyder, the paper's author, wasn't able to speak to us about this result in time for the podcast. But she did explain via email this figure was provided in the paper to give a ballpark sense of what might happen if the past interactive feedbacks had the same relationship in the future as they've had in the past 800,000 years. So, Gavin, just putting this number to the side... What for you is the most important aspect of this paper? Well, I, I, th- I think the the temperature record itself is is the main point here, and and I hope that the the success of you know seeing these records and and seeing how useful they're going to be uh, is going to prompt people into putting more data online and being able to extend uh, these records uh, further back in time or and. You know, and, and, and fill in some of the details uh, within that two million year block. That was Gavin Schmidt. To read the paper for yourself, head to nature.com forward slash nature. And for more about the study, don't miss the Nature News piece. Find that, of course, at nature.com forward slash news. Still to come in the news chat, conserving Cuban crocs and combating all diseases. But before we tackle those two topics, it's time for our favourite stories from elsewhere. It's the research highlights, read by Cory Locke in Boston. Over the last few hundred years, rats, cats and other predatory mammals have been introduced into new habitats around the world, and they are wreaking havoc on the native species. Researchers looked at all of the birds, mammals and reptiles that have gone extinct in the last 500 years. They found that more than half of these extinctions can be blamed, at least in part, on these exotic mammalian predators such as dogs and pigs. Animals living on islands seem to be especially vulnerable. The researchers stressed the importance of eradicating exotic predators from islands worldwide. The study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. For years, the text on a 2,000-year-old Hebrew scroll was a mystery. Now, thanks to new computer scanning and imaging techniques, researchers are finally able to read the writing on the fragile parchment. The scroll dates back to at least the 4th century AD. It was damaged by fire and can't be unrolled. So researchers used x-rays to scan the ancient artifact. They also developed software called virtual unwrapping to digitally reconstruct the pages and words. They discovered that the scroll contains fragments of the Book of Leviticus. You can learn more about the work in the journal Science Advances. Occasionally on the podcast, we hear about the discovery of new super-heavy elements, elements that have huge numbers of protons in their nucleus. Just creating these unstable atoms is hard enough, but what about trying to study them during their short lives? A Nature paper out this week does just that, so reporter Lizzie Gibney gave author Mustafa Latiawi a call. So why is it so hard to study these really heavy elements such as nobelium? The elements like nobelium and uh, even the heavier ones, they uh, are not existing in nature. So the only way how we can produce them is uh, via fusion-evaporation reactions. 
we fuse, let's say, calcium uh, atoms with lead atoms, and then we produce these kind of uh, heavy atoms, which are very short-lived. We focused on nobelium. This is one of the heaviest elements. It is the 10th element after the element uranium. And so when you produce it artificially in experiments, how many uh, atoms of nobelium can you can you produce? In the best case for nobelium-254, we can produce something like 10 per second of nobelium atoms. But we reported in our paper nobelium-252. This is even harder to produce than for nobelium-254, and it lives only for something like 2.4 seconds. And so what are the usual methods that scientists like you use to probe inside atoms and to get a picture of what's going on? So we use optical spectroscopy. We apply uh, different lasers to excite and ionize the atom, to probe the electron configuration of the atom and also the ionization potential, which is the energy required to remove the outermost electron. Both quantities which are characteristic for an element. So we get insight in and explore the atomic structure of these elements. Okay, so what you're trying to do is, basically by trial and error, figure out what energy of laser beam to hit an atom with to make an electron first jump up an energy level and then escape the atom altogether. But if nobelium is so short-lived and, and difficult to produce, as you, as you mentioned, how do you manage to do that for these atoms? Well, one should uh, produce them and immediately investigate them. One should optimise also the cooling down of these atoms within seconds. And this should be very efficient, uh, very fast and ultra-sensitive at the same time. And so you found a figure for this energy transition. How well does it match with what theory had uh, told you to expect? Since our laser spectroscopy experiments deliver uh, quite precise values for the transition energies, this is a powerful benchmark for actually for theoretical predictions. And all the theories, they all agree with what we have found. And I believe that those theoretical predictions take into account some rather crazy electron effects that we only see in elements where the atom is really big, like Nobelium. And there's been a lot of uncertainty in those theories. So I'm, I'm guessing theorists must be pretty happy that you can actually provide some experimental data now to test them against. Nobelium's far from the heaviest element that we know. I think that the, the very heaviest are four that have just recently been added to the periodic table, in fact. Are these kinds of new elements also ones that at some point we're going to be able to study in this way? Well, the natural step now is to go uh, further to uh, the next heavier element, which would be the element 103, Laurentium. And, uh, of course, the challenge would be uh, then the lower production uh, rate, which is uh, five times less than uh, in case of nobelium. To go further uh, to the super-heavy elements is uh, still uh, difficult to achieve. All in all, however, one may consider our experiments as a stepping stone towards experimentally unveiling the atomic structure of uh, the very elusive super heavy elements. That was Mustafa Latiawi from the Helmholtz Institute in Mainz, Germany. And for more from reporter Lizzie Gibney, don't miss our coverage of the last moments of Rosetta. 
The probe will crash into Comet 67P on Friday, and Nature is running a live blog throughout the day, including a Facebook live session with Lizzie and guests. For more info, head to go.nature.com forward slash farewell Rosetta with a capital R for Rosetta. Time now for this week's news chat, and joining us in the studio is Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver. Hi, Celeste. Hi, Adam. So first up this week, uh, Priscilla Chan and her husband, Mark Zuckerberg, of Facebook fame, they've started an initiative with what seem like quite lofty goals. Yeah, that's right. Um, In fact, the goal is to eliminate, cure or prevent all disease by the end of the century. They've dedicated $3 billion, though that is the initial fund. $3 billion seems like a lot of money, but it also seems like a very ambitious project. What are they hoping to do differently to what previous projects have done? Their emphasis is really interdisciplinary and on bringing biomedical scientists together with engineers to create tools that can help the scientists um, make discoveries much faster. So one of the neuroscientists who's going to be president of the uh, science for the new initiative uh, said something that I I thought expressed that really well, which was, right now, every scientist writes their own code, and that's a bit like them each making their own soap. And what she's trying to say is, it would be much better if we had much more general technical tools that could just be invented once and then shared amongst researchers so they weren't spending time on the technical aspects instead of just having the tools there so they could get on with the science. And I do find that more convincing since it's coming from an engineering company, which is Facebook. Where will this initiative actually physically be based or is it a worldwide endeavour? Well, one big section of it is something called the BioHub, which is going to be in San Francisco and is a partnership with Stanford University, the University of California, Berkeley and the University of California, San Francisco. So three really top universities that are all nearby. In the context of big projects started by people involved in tech, there's there's sometimes a talk of a bit of a brain drain and a worry that some of the ideas won't make it out of that initiative in the same way they would if their ideas coming from, say, universities. Is that a risk in this case? Possibly, although Zuckerberg Chan have been made a specific point that unlike um, Google's parent company, Alphabet, which has a bunch of biomedical companies now under its umbrella, they're saying that they're being much more transparent because they've actually said what their big goals are and how they're going to do it. Um, Whereas Google's been very secretive about what it's doing. It's been really, really hard to figure it out. But it has certainly raised some questions also about the role of philanthropy in driving research, which is becoming a big trend with Bill and Melinda Gates. I think no researcher wants to say no to $3 billion spent on basic research into medicine. It just does raise some new questions when it's individuals who are making these decisions rather than committees appointed by democratically elected governments. It it sort of changes the landscape. And I think that's something everyone's trying to get used to and figure out how they kind of exploit that. It is such an audacious goal. Do people think they might actually be able to pull it off? I don't think people know. Um, And one interesting thing that Eric Lander, who's been consulting on the project, um, but is also president of the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard, he said, you know, this kind of makes you gulp. um, But it also really makes you think and, and provokes people to think, well, can we do that? And I do think that's a good point. Unless you actually think of it in that way, then you definitely won't do it. And it's certainly a positive thing to to, to try and think about how we could eliminate, prevent or cure all disease. 
Well, we can only hope that Chan and Zuckerberg managed to pull off this audacious task by the end of the century. Moving on now to our second story, which is on Cuban crocodiles. Efforts to conserve Cuban crocodiles have hit a bit of a an unusual obstacle. What researchers in Cuba who've been trying to conserve them have discovered is that a lot more of the wild Cuban crocodiles are actually hybrids who've um, the product of mating between Cuban crocodiles and American crocodiles. There is a foundation that was actually set up by Fidel Castro himself um, in the 1960s to um, save and conserve the Cuban crocodile. But the question the scientists are now facing is, should they change the focus of this effort? Should they continue to try and keep the genetic purity of the original Cuban crocodile? Or perhaps there's a good reason why these hybrid crocodiles are surviving in the wild. And perhaps if the Cuban crocodile continues to mate with the American one, these hybrids will actually survive in a changing world better, especially with all the threats that they'll face from climate change. How extensive is this interbreeding and does scientists have any idea why it's taking place in the first place? Well, the most recent analysis, um, which was done on 227 wild crocodiles, he found that half of them were hybrids. And if you compare that with the ones they have in captivity, that was just 16% of the 130 crocodiles in captivity. They don't know why it is, and they don't know whether the fact that it's happening suggests that these crocodiles are more or less adapted. And then there are other people who think, even if they are more resilient, should we still try and save this original species? How do you end up making a decision like this? What informs this decision, and who ends up making the decision? Well, the Cuban conservationists at the foundation are trying to figure out whether science will ever tell them an answer or whether this is just something that they have to decide on based on their judgment, based on their instincts. And it may not be something where science can offer a clear-cut answer. Thank you, Celeste, for explaining both Cuban crocodiles and curing all diseases. For more on those stories and others, of course, head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for the podcast this week, but if you haven't had your fill of science yet, head over to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel to watch a tiny paper boat being pushed along by an acoustic hologram. Also on our YouTube channel, four beautiful animations featuring four Nobel laureates. The laureates explain their prize-winning work with the help of fireflies and laser guns. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker. 